Holy Spirit, I ask you to speak through Ray as we delve into your wonderful book, Romans, <clears throat> letter to the Romans, and I pray you will not just teach us the material, but teach us of you. And, and would you do uh, life change today? So we leave here different people than we can. Jesus' name. I gave you a little bit of an introduction last time to chapter 14 in the book of Romans. And I'd like to review most of it and go over it a little bit more quickly. Just to remind you to get into the passage itself. I've kind of titled uh, the first 12 verses, Conflict of Convictions. I guess that's one way of describing what Paul is, is describing in not only chapter 14, but uh, all the way to the middle of chapter 15. It's one unit, all goes together. You can divide it into at least four parts. First 12 verses, the conflict of convictions. So conflict of convictions, first 12 verses. And these are very applicable to our day as well. And uh, you probably have even encountered some of these conflicts yourself. I'm not, I'd be surprised if all of you have not had some of them, because we all come from different backgrounds, different theologies even, different denominations, different levels of maturity and immaturity. And all of these contribute to different viewpoints that people have concerning things that are not crystal clear in Scripture, things that are a little bit more vague in terms of absolutes. Now, there are absolutes in Scripture, and I think there's plenty of passages that make them clear. Uh, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, things like that. But there's others that are not of the Ten Commandments that are more absolute. But there's a lot of other areas, and particularly areas uh, relating to cultural backgrounds, denominational backgrounds, and that sort of thing. In the first century, it was a Jewish Gentile cultural issue that uh, was oftentimes a source of conflict as well. So we're dealing with believers that lived in the city of Rome, and I keep stressing that these are believers. The book of Romans is written to a Christian audience that was familiar, somewhat familiar with some theological concepts. Paul uses theological terms. So we've gone a little bit slowly to become uh, familiar with a lot of them. We've spent lots of time. We've been in the book for five years now, going on five years. So we've looked at the doctrinal section of the book, two parts to it, chapters 1 through 8, provision of God's righteousness. And then we have the vindication of God's righteousness dealing with the nation of Israel. We're in the applicational portion. And I divide this part into four different subdivisions, relationship to God, how does everything that Paul has been talking about in the first 11 chapters, what does it look like in everyday living, first beginning with what it looks like in relationship to God, what it looks like in relationship to the church, what it looks like in relationship to society, and we completed uh, chapter 13 last time. And now he's dealing with, I guess you could say, somewhat of a particular issue, and perhaps and none of the commentators make a comment on this, but it, it kind of makes sense to me that uh, in the book of Romans, you don't have any problems that Paul is dealing with. 
kind of the counterpart to that is the, the, the church at Corinth. The whole book is just problem after problem after problem. Divisions, abuses of spiritual gifts, same issue in terms of relationship in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. They had a problem with worship. They had a problem with communion. Paul addresses all of these problems, problem after problem after problem. But in the book of Romans, it's more theological, and there don't seem to be any problems. If there was a particular issue, this may have been it. An issue in terms of relationships that uh, related to Jew and Gentile and related to Christian and non-Christian. In other words, where Jews came from in terms of background and where Gentiles came from in terms of background. So if there's any problem, if there was any issue, this may have been the issue, and this may be why that we are given this little passage, and it certainly is relevant to us today. And in the outline, I've been going through all of the applications on outline form. We're looking at the application in Christian liberty. I spent some time last time talking about some of the passages dealing with the liberty that we have in Christ and we'll go over a little bit of that again. So first 12 verses, the re- reception or the receiving or the acceptance of those that have differing convictions. First 12 verses. Verse 1, dealing with the receiving of brothers or reception of brothers, or you might use accepting of brothers. That's the word that Paul uses in verse 1 of, of uh chapter 14. So we looked at this introduction last time on your outline sheet, those of you that printed it out. I've got the four little items there. The first one is that freedom in Christ, and we looked at freedom from the old life. We were unaware until we came into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We were unaware that we were living essentially in the domain of darkness, We were unaware that in large measure, our life was controlled by our our sinful nature. Well, we were probably aware by the sinful nature, but we didn't know the extent of that. We probably didn't realize that we were in bondage. And the Bible even uses the word slave or bond slaves to that old sinful nature. And there was no way of breaking loose. There's nothing you can do to break loose, but in Christ, Christ has broken that, and now we are free from that. Now, we still have the old nature, but uh, we have been freed from it, and uh, we don't have to go back to living according to the dictates of that old nature. We choose to do it, and we're tempted to do it, and we're more comfortable doing it, but uh, that has been broken in our relationship to Christ. We've been totally forgiven once and for all, and we've been broken loose. We've been loosened from that old way of life. So freedom from the old life. We looked up some of these passages. This is a stress. Even though Paul doesn't stress the word freedom, he talks. He describes it in different ways. Chapter 6, verse 6 or 7. Chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, he does use the word freedom in a couple of those passages there. We're totally forgiven. It's part of justification. We're freedom from old systems as well, old patterns, old traditions, old denominations, old associations. 
we're freed from there. We're not bound to them. Now, again, we're more comfortable sometimes retaining them, and that's where the conflict comes in. And or not understanding or realizing that freedom. And we looked up some of the passages that indicate or at least give some hints along those lines last time as well. 1 Corinthians 10, Galatians 2, verse 4, 4 through 4, verse 8 through 11. We're also free from legalism. Now, this is not just a Jewish issue. A lot of us come out of, for example, Roman Catholicism, which is highly legalistic. A lot of do's and don'ts. Some people come out of a legalistic Baptist background and other backgrounds that are legalistic. In fact, most systems tend to be legalistic. We like rules. We like to check the boxes. Makes you safe. Yep, makes you feel like you're doing something and makes you feel like you're making some progress. But we're free from that. There's a freedom there that we can experience. Passage in Romans, we're no longer under law, but under grace. 614, freedom from legalism. And this is a big issue amongst the Jewish people in the first century because they came from a very highly legalistic system. So that comes into play in part of the passage that we'll look at in chapter 14. And if you're free from the old life, you don't have to live that way. Now you are free to a new life. And before we were believers, we didn't realize it, but we had no access to that new life. And now in Christ, we have access to a new way of living. Living in newness of life. That's chapter 6, verse 4 there. And this newness of life is a new experience that we can experience, a new way of looking at life, reckoning different things. Verse 11, chapter 6. Other passages in chapter 6. Galatians 5.1, we are free, free in Christ. Bill, do you have a question? Going back to freedom to legalism, to the fact that I'm done with or rendered in, in that same perspective. Christ is not only the I, end of Ray, the law, but the fulfillment of law. Couldn't Bill? hear him. Couldn't hear Bill. Couldn't hear you? Say it louder. Yeah, the volume was too low for him. I'm going to probably have to repeat it. Bill was asking the question concerning the law. State it again, simply. So... That freedom from legalism is that freedom in this, that Christ is the Christ law, is the end of the law. And especially for the Jewish believers that no longer comply with the law of Moses. Right. Not that it doesn't inform and teach about God, but that specific covenant. Covenant is the key word. <coughs> right. Completed, fulfilled. Right. In other words, the, the covenant is binding. It's a legal document. It was binding upon Israel, and God bound himself to that covenant as well. He would perform dependent on how Israel uh, performed in terms of their relationship to the covenant. And that's the point. That covenant was fulfilled in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we can violate the Ten Commandments, because some of the provisions of that covenant go beyond just the covenant, and they're more universal. Yes. Yeah, in the background verses for that's going to be 24 through 7. Ezekiel 24, around? About 4 through 7. 4 through 7. Uh, that was the sprinkling that Moses did, that this is the blood of the covenant. Uh, and the New Testament passage would be 
Hebrews 9, right around 14 or 15. Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. Where it talks about, uh, and covenants are not set into place without the, without the shedding of blood. So, yeah. Okay. And when Christ died, he essentially satisfied the requirements of the, the law. Okay. Good question. Good comments. So, we're free in Christ. And I think that's the issue in chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse 13. Now, this presented problems in the first century, and we went over some of these problems. The Jews that came out of that legalistic background, that ritualistic practice, observing of certain days, the prohibition of eating certain foods, the ceremonies of feasts, and certain things that were required. This is the background of the Jewish people. And they're steeped in it, and they're, they're comfortable with it. And to, to abandon some of those things was a very difficult thing for a Jewish person. To realize and to understand the freedom in Christ took some time and took some growth of every individual Jew. And that also happens to those of us that come out of a legalistic background. It takes time to begin to sort out, okay, I don't have to do these certain things. It's not a mortal sin to not to miss church or to whatever the requirement that you're under. So they were under a very legalistic system, observing of Sabbaths, other days, foods, the, the issues of clean and unclean as well. Ruthann, you, you uh, have... I don't know if you have time. Keep the, but keeping the law is a burden. Right. Right. But then very, it's like both. It's a right. new thing. In fact, today, this, in today, you're right. describing, he, she's describing an issue of Messianic Jews today. Well, I, I noticed Norm was putting his hand up to his ear, and I can't hear her either. Do you want people to be able, on the recording, to be able to hear uh, the comments that pe other people are making? Because... The, the volume on incoming audio is yeah, very, very low. Yeah, I understand that. I'm trying to balance it out here. Yeah, what Ruthann is raising, and by the way, for those of you that don't know, Ruthann started this group, so you have to blame her. Don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called Messianic Judaism. She only had three kids back then, I think. But... But there are some there are some Jewish people today that still prefer to go back to the ceremonies and some of the Jewish practices, observe cert certain food feast days, and still observe, for example, Leviticus 11, some of the foods. The problem, if they do that personally, that's a conviction. The problem is the imposing of that and the expectation of others, and that's the issue that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. That is legalism. Jeff? So yeah, so freedom is me doing what God wants me to do. Legalism is me making you do what God wants me to do. Or making myself do what I think God wants me to do, yeah. Or there. Yeah, yeah. very good. So anyway, in the first century, this problem with Jewish people that now are free in Christ still have all of those years and background and training and emphasis on the Mosaic Law, it's hard to realize that freedom in Christ. 
Well, we looked at some of these passages that kind of indicate that issue all the way to Daniel chapter 1. Now, amongst the Gentiles in the first century, they had a problem as well. And in that uh, first century Gentile situation, but the Gentiles, many of them came out of a very pagan, sometimes religious background, and they would have their own pagan festivals associated with their own pantheon of gods. And some of them were fertility gods and involved uh, a lot of immorality and a lot of drunkenness even, drunken orgies, and uh, meats sacrificed to these idols. Now that's the issue primarily in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians is written primarily to a Gentile audience. Romans is dealing with the similar situation, writing to a Jewish and Gentile audience. And there was probably a combination of the two at Rome. So Paul is dealing more broadly in the book of Romans than he's doing perhaps in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In fact, I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If we don't have time today, we'll look at it uh, next, next time. So the Gentiles coming out of that same background, for example, meat sacrifice to idols, they were fearful of eating meat for fear that maybe this was sacrificed to an idol. And Paul in chapter 8 says, idols are figments of your imagination. Idols are not gods. They're not, there are no gods. There's only one god is what he says in chapter 8. Now, you make them gods, and you worship them as if they're gods, and you do things that are against what the Bible teaches concerning false doctrine and false gods, but in reality, all meats are fine, all meats are clean, and we're free to eat meats, and I would even think even meats offered to idols, because there's, I think that's one of the points he's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But if you come from that background, and you're used to eating that, and now in your thinking, you don't want to go back to eating meat sacrificed to idols, and you have these uh, cultural backgrounds that cause your conscience to be uh, damaged. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he talks about the issue of the conscience as well. He doesn't mention conscience in Romans 14 or 15, but he does in 1 Corinthians 8, but he's dealing with the same issue. So in the first century, we had uh, both Jew and Gentile coming from different backgrounds, but having a similar issue. So a Gentile that now is free in Christ has some freedoms that some of those younger, and Paul describes them as weaker believers, are still burdened with and still are trying to overcome. So we'll see all that as we get into some of the verses and there's your 1 Corinthians 8. In fact, you can take it all the way to the end of the chapter. The problem today manifests itself in a similar way because we come from a, a variety of backgrounds as well. People from all spiritual ages, newly trusting in Christ, babies in Christ that uh, have just discovered this freedom in Christ and don't quite understand it or grasp it. Some people that have uh, been believers for 50, 60, 70 years. Maddie, how many years? 80 years for you or so? <clears throat> At least, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we have just a variety of backgrounds. 
And in that, a variety of uh, spiritual levels and understanding, maturity levels, different denominations, some very legalistic, some not so legalistic. So we have different backgrounds and people are saved out of these backgrounds, these denominations, Uh, religious backgrounds, even cults, even cults. People obviously come out of them and are saved and you can add to the list as well other ethnicities, uh, different cultural backgrounds as well that contribute to this whole situation. So baptisms, if you come from a Baptist church, you may be wondering, well, this person was only sprinkled. I don't consider them baptized. You need to be baptized. (laughs) You need to be dumped or whatever. These are issues that occur and, in fact, are a problem on church. Some people have a hard time with uh, people that work on a Sunday. Not so much now, but a lot of these, I think most of the, a lot of these have gone by the wayside because we've become so secular and there's so many non-church background people anymore. Everybody's coming from a pagan background nowadays. But some of these were issues. Do I wear a head covering or not? And if I feel like I should wear a head covering, how come you don't have one? You know, that's the issue that he's dealing with. In some circles, pacifism, yeah, or cutting your hair, playing cards, movies, all the legalistic things, TVs, parties. An issue today, homeschooling. Because of the corruption of the public schools, there are some Christians that think that they have a hard time seeing that other Christians can justify sending their children to public schools. And again, there's not a biblical passage that indicates, or there's not any clear guidance. This is an issue of conviction, and the situation needs to be evaluated individually. And we can make a longer list as well. Some people have a hard time with observing Christmas and Easter because of all of the pagan traditions associated to to both. There are some Christians that say that you should not celebrate it at all, and they're not biblical other than uh, the resurrection of Christ, but the whole issue of Easter. Mary Lee? I'm just thinking that nowadays people, uh, certainly secular people, turn it around and say, if you are a Christian, why do you tolerate fill in the blank, which is a moral issue? Right. But Christians are being slammed for for you know all these other sins, whether it's right. you know just feeling anything that we're dealing with right now, right. sexuality, predation, pressures, you know the whole thing. Right, and I think the passage also, by way of more by way of application, pertains to new believers. Sometimes are not aware of some things that are in fact clear sin. And sometimes the older believer will impose the standards of their 80 years of Christian growth upon this eight-day-old uh, mm-hmm. young believer, and that can be a problem as well. So some of the principles, I think, will transfer over to that area as well. Well, let's talk about the weaker brother. And I think you need to understand what he is talking about when he talks about the weaker brother here. He's not... Uh, How do I say this? Paul is not diminishing, maybe that's a good way of putting it, he's not diminishing what he is describing as the weaker brother. I think he's dealing with reality in that there exists 
a category of believers that are not in the same place that a different category of believers are. And that difference causes issues and problems, sometimes even divisions within the church. So the issue that he's talking about when he's talking about the weak brother, he's not talking about, well, the weak brother, he's just into evil. And the strong believer, he's okay. I mean, he's doing what he should. He's, so it's not an issue of good and evil. It's not an issue of right and wrong. If it was an issue of right and wrong, Paul would state it in these passages. In other words, he would say it is wrong to eat certain things or it is wrong to not eat certain things. So it's not an issue of right and wrong. It's not an issue of obedience or the issue of sin. In other words, the weaker brother, or in this case, the the stronger brother is not in sin because he's free to do certain things that the weaker brother doesn't think he should be doing. So it's not an issue of sin and or obedience. We'll see later it's an issue of conviction. It's not a matter of spirituality. The weak brother may be just as spiritual, just as filled with the Spirit, just as obedient and walking in the Spirit as the strong believer. So that's not what is at issue in 14 and 15. And when it talks about weak in faith, he's not talking about saving faith. In other words, trusting in Jesus Christ. He's talking about a different kind of faith. In fact, I have a slide to try to define what he's talking about here. So it's not saving faith as opposed to unbelief. It's not strong per se. In other words, the strong believer is a mightier Christian than the weak believer. There may be some differences there, but that's not the emphasis. That's not the point of the passage. And just to round it out with seven, because seven is the number of completion there, and I ran out of space on the slide. It's not an issue of mature and immature, although it overlaps And in general, the weaker believer would be probably not as mature as the strong believer in this context. But that's not the issue. The issue is not maturity. Um, And I would add that on the issue of being fallen from categories of weak versus strong in a particular area, as opposed to somebody else. Right. Different believers can fall into different categories in different areas. Right. So a believer that's weak in area over here may strong over here, but another believer right. is that which places. Yep. So I think that's irony. Yep. That's why we, it's part of it. That's why we live in community, so that when those issues come up that we might be weak on, mm-hmm. someone else might Yep. Connie's pointing out this is why we interact together and relate to one another together in a body of Christ so that we can balance people out and help each other. Iron sharpens iron is the word that she used. So that's not what's at issue. What is at issue? I think it's an issue of conscience. An issue of conscience, it's an issue of convictions that you have worked out and your convictions may be different than the next person because you have worked certain things out and perhaps the other person has not or perhaps God has freed that other person in areas that maybe God has not freed you. So it's an area of conviction. And it's an area of conscience. It's not Conscience isn't stressed as much in Romans 14 and 15. It's stressed more in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But I think it's present as well. So 
something may bother you and you are not permitted by your conviction to do certain things, and it doesn't mean that you are necessarily right and this is right and somebody else is wrong if they do the things that you cannot do, all right? So the weak believer, this is probably the best description that I've been able to come up with or find to define the weak believer is one who does not fully grasp his freedom in Christ. Does not fully grasp his freedom in Christ. The strong believer would be the alternative, the one who has a better grasp or who does grasp what it means to be free in Christ. Joe, do you have a comment? Um, yeah, I was just going to sometimes addictions have related our past. Yep. And so Geneva saying sometimes the convictions we have are related to our past. So, so uh, it's not a matter of uh, whether sinning. It's a matter of whether uh, handle those situations. Yep. It's not a matter of whether we're sinning. It's a matter of whether we can handle the particular situation. Okay. Good, Jeff. Baggage. Baggage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, baggage. Old nature baggage is what Jeff says. Okay. So the strong is one who has a better grasp on the freedom that we have in Christ. So in that sense, he may be further along. And like Geneva says, it may vary. And, uh, and Maddie is saying that different Christians may have different areas where they would be the weak rather than strong, and they may be strong in other areas and weak in other areas, okay? But the tendency in both and the tendency that Paul is dealing with, this is the heart of this subdivision. The tendency is the weak tends to be judgmental of the strong because the weak says, I can't do that because I, I just, it bothers my conscience. And if you do it, you are wrong. You're in sin if you do it. That's the tendency of the weak. And that's what Paul is correcting here. And we'll see that in specific verses itself. The strong, the tendency is, oh, I've worked through all of that. I'm free. I know what it means to be free in Christ. I'm above you. <laughs> so the tendency is pride. And sometimes, quit bugging me. <laughs> you know, despising the weak. So that's the tendency, and this is what Paul is trying to correct. So this is the heart of uh, Romans chapter 14 and the middle of 15. So the need, and again, this is kind of the overarching need that we all need that Paul is addressing, is acceptance. In other words, the strong needs to accept the weak, and the weak needs to accept that uh, the strong may have some different convictions than the weak individual does. And we'll look at that word uh, acceptance in verse 1. And then in verse 3, it talks about God using the very same identical word. God is the one that has accepted both. And if God's accepted both, then we are called upon to accept one another as well. David. Does the eye say to the foot, I have no need of thee? That's right. <laughs> yeah, First Corinthians 14. Uh, does the eye say that I have no need of thee to the foot? Okay. And then we have it again in 15.7. Uh, so this idea of acceptance. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ 
also accepted us to the glory of God. Okay, so that's the heart of the, the passage, and the verses will just flesh out and give more detail to this little bit of an introduction. So let's take a look at the first verse and see how far we get today. Maybe we'll get a couple of verses this morning. <laughs> 40 minute introduction. Pardon me? 40 minute introduction. Yeah. We're, we roll. we're not on anybody's schedule, right? We've been here for five years. Now the English text starts with the, the emphasis of the text. And if any of you have a Greek text, what is the emphatic the, the words that are in the, the very beginning are the, are the emphatic position. In other words, this is the stress of uh, the Greek text. Does anyone know what they may be? Nobody have a Greek I text? I get there on my, on my fancy phone. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is scrolling his phone to find out what are the first words. And then I have to go to tools. And, and actually, it's only one participle. One who is weak is the very first word there. Well, participle actually has six different parts. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, well, it's an accusative singular masculine, and it's a plural. She's asking for the tense. Uh, well, a present active participle. It's a present tense. Present tense. So it's ongoing, ongoing. <laughs> Ongoing acceptance. Yeah, but it's a present participle. Yeah, it's a participle. Yeah. Okay. So, the one who is weak. What did you say, Jim? Jim? It's describing, it's describing a person. Yep, it's describing a person. The one who is weak. <clears throat> so, it's a, it's a verbal adjective is, by, is what a participle is. But the main thrust and the main... You might even say the main imperative or the main command is this idea of accepting. And he's kind of tying it back to the prior passage now. Another topic here, accept the one who is weak, and he's weak in faith. So let's take a look at some of these words here. The word to accept is a compound Greek word. For you Greek students, paralambano. What is the main part of that verb? Oh, pro, oh, proslambano. I'm sorry. Sorry. Proslambano. <coughs> Lambano is the main verb. Very common. Occurs over about 250 times in the New Testament. And it has the basic idea of to receive or to take something. And remember, when you add a preposition to a verb, not always... But oftentimes, it intensifies the idea of the verb. So the idea here probably has the idea is to receive totally or to receive into fellowship, you might even say, or to take to oneself. In other words, to draw them in. Our tendency is, okay, you're making trouble for me. I'm going to repel you. And the verb here is to draw them in. In other words, accept them in a definite and in a full and, and total sense. Praslambano, to accept. So it is a, a very definite, strong word indicating that this is something that may even take some effort and some determination 
to accept the one that we're having a conflict with, and that's always the case. Our tendency in the flesh is to repel and to reject and to push away or to back away rather than to do the other opposite of embracing. You could even translate it embrace. Wrap your arms around them and draw them in. Might that be? Your what? Might that, the fact that it repels, or might that show weak impact, the fact that the place of the strong brother show that that's a weakness he's afraid he's got? Well, the strong brother is repelled by him because of his pride, I think, generally. Pride. And by the way, <laughs> that's not going to be God's way. By the way, Paul is primarily addressing the stronger believer in these early verses. Now he deals with both, and he'll deal with the weak believer, but he starts off with the stronger believer accepting or drawing in the uh, the weaker believer. Mm-hmm. So that's the first word there. The second word is the weak, and if you do a word study, you're going to find, uh, well, the Greek word there, astheneo, the Greek word, can be used, in fact, more commonly, the majority of the time, it has the idea of weakness in a physical sense. In fact, it's sometimes translated sick. In the Gospels, oftentimes, Jesus healed the weak, or he healed the sick, has the idea there. But it's also used a few times, like in this context, when it's used in a more non-physical sense, could be a spiritual sense. In this context, weak in faith, so it's related in terms of spirituality, you might say. So it's used more in a spiritual sense. And then we have a but, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. Don't judge on his opinions, and I'm going to highlight this word because we're going to have have the word judgment throughout this passage. I haven't counted them. I think it's like four times in chapter 14, and I can't remember if it's in chapter 15 or not. So we have past judgment. It's another compound word, diacresis. It, uh, in many contexts, has the idea of discernment, which is a positive way of Uh, Looking at that word, sometimes it's used in a positive sense. In the sense of making distinctions, that's a good thing. In this context, it's making a distinction in a negative context. Passing judgment in a negative sense, when we should not do that. In fact, the passage encourages us against that. That's right. (laughs) That's my, my, my judgment is that you are... A wimpy Christian. Purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, another Greek word, dialogismas. Notice logos in the middle of that. We probably get a word like dialogue from that. Has the idea of thoughts, ideas, opinions, thinking, reasoning. So in your thinking, in your reasoning, don't come to judgmental conclusions. Even though you may have evaluated and took into account some of the data, don't judge. You may even be accurate in your conclusion, but it's harmful to fellow believers when we judge them, when we pass judgment, diacresis. And that leads us to verse 
2 through 11. He's going to now lay out reasons, and that's probably a good place to stop. We'll take a quick look at the first one, and then we'll look at, uh, on your outline sheet, I have four major reasons that Paul develops in this passage that to warn us against passing judgment, against not accepting the weaker brother, and in that he's going to mix in the weak brother and encourage them along the lines as well. So, 14 to Question. 11. Jim? Question. Go ahead. What about, what about uh, warning somebody, a Christian, of, you know, with regard to conduct uh, or the way they're conducting their life? Well, there's lots of encouragement to do that. I think we always do it with humility and sincerity and kindness and care. He's dealing with particular kinds of things here in this passage. In other passages, I think he's warning in more clear-cut areas. So here he's calling for more restraint because these are not so clear-cut as other areas where I think we are encouraged to warn one another. Okay, So there's a balance in the Christian walk. There's occasions when we need to exhort and encourage and even rebuke one another. There are occasions for that. And those are the areas where things are very clear-cut, and there's clear-cut possibility of damage. These are not those kinds of areas. Mary Lee. It also deals with the pride of each one, because it is very easy to get your feathers ruffled and everything out of joint, because someone said, hey, you know, what you are doing, I don't think that as a believer in Christ, you ought to be doing it whether you're the weaker or the stronger. Right. And so it's real easy to be get real huffy over that. That church certainly has a bunch of dumb Christians in it. I don't want to go to that church. Right. And particularly over areas that are not only questionable, but areas that come out of legalism or backgrounds similar to that. Not clear-cut. Not clear-cut. So the first reason for reception is God has accepted both. And I think what he's talking about, God has saved both and has accepted them just where they're at. And he has a plan and a program of developing, sanctifying, strengthening, developing both the strong and the weak. Now, he starts off, and I'm just going to read these passages. We'll come back to them. I don't want to get into detail. We're running out of time here. One person has faith. He's going to define kind of this area. One person has faith that he may eat all things. We'll talk about that next time. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. So two different convictions. And we'll come back to that next time. And then verse 2, he may eat all things. I'm going to come back to this next time. Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge. There you go. The judging judgmental attitude, the one looking down with pride, judgmental attitude. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God accepted him. God has died on the cross for him. He's accepted him. He's forgiven him. He can have the same fellowship, the same relationship. And God has accepted him. The implication, let God make those distinctions. Bill? So would it yes. Yeah, the word there is crino, crino, 
which can mean condemn, judge in the sense of condemning. And not same word as Right. And there, there's a time to judge and there's a time not to. And the Matthew 7 is giving the time not to. And here also. Go ahead. I mean, don't evaluate. Right. Passing sentence. Very good. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you don't evaluate, as Bill first said. On one another in these areas. In these questionable areas. David. Doesn't he uh, also say, esteem another in yourself? He's clarifying and he's saying, when you're interacting with people who you don't agree with, Right. Humility is the key. Humility is the key. Esteem others more highly. Even if right. they're not. Yeah, even if they're wrong. <laughs> in your opinion. This topic is threaded all through the test. Okay. We'll pick up there. In fact, we'll go back to verse 2 and look at it in more detail next time. And more than likely here again, 4 o'clock. Okay. And... Try to come a little bit early so that we don't have to have somebody wait at the door. Because we're the only ones here. I don't know why they trust us, but I guess they don't know us, right? (laughs) Okay. In fact, why don't we just uh, have a general time of prayer? Let's do it. And Father, I do want to pray for the Christians in Hong Kong. I want to pray for the Christians around the world who are experiencing increasingly vicious persecution. Uh, Father, that is almost something I cannot wrap my mind around, Mm -hmm. having never encountered it the way some do. So I pray for Phyllis, I pray for our brothers, our sisters around the world, those in Africa, those certainly up in Ethiopia. I was just reading about the believers and their struggles there. Father, may we, as your children here in the United States, be be equipped to stand strong, to not be wimpy, whining, crying people, but to fully grasp your hand and to walk with you wherever you lead us. I pray that we will exemplify the life of Christ in the way that we walk, even in the face of persecution and tribulation. And I commit that to you. Anyone in the Zoom group want to pray? Yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead. Go ahead, Katie. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for this time of fellowship to continue in um, this mixed uh, way of doing so. Um, I praise you for that. And um, God, I just thank you so much for the freedom that we have in your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for um, giving him to us so we can be free And uh, God, I just pray that we apply what we've learned today to, you know, however we see ourselves as the stronger or weaker or whatever, Lord, I just pray that you help us in our our faith walk, our sanctification, um, and just our daily walk with you, Lord, to, um, to just remember that we are just so free in what Christ has done for us and, um, to encourage others and, um, you know, not, not to pass judgment on those who, you know, might heap legalism on themselves or, um, I just, I pray for those who feel like they're bound to legalistic ways that they, um, 
they come to a, an understanding that they're free, that they're free in Christ and um, that they can just rest in what Jesus has already done for them. Um, I pray, I pray for that myself. I know we all struggle to some degree on trying to, um, to do this or that Lord and uh, it's done. So I just thank you for the fact that you've, you've, it, it's paid in full. So thank you so much. And I just pray that you help me remember that too, Lord.